It's the clash of the table toppers in the Premier League this weekend. OTB Sports Radio, the only place to hear live and exclusive radio commentary of Manchester City versus Liverpool on Sunday. Oh, the shape that will care. You let all the fans down. Can we not knock it? It's a fact. I'm not playing mind games. I'm talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladici, I would probably say I was more of a tactical genius. So I answer questions on anything. Uh, religious, that? politics, uh, health. You know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you! Disgrace! And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Yes, you're very welcome along to Team 33 and a call here with you up until about 10 o'clock this evening. Busy show this evening, lots to get into. Premier League, Everton in a relegation dogfight with Burnley. Champions League, Benzema turning it on again against Chelsea. And Manchester United may have their man. Eric Ten Hag seems to be the name that is going to be walking onto the pitch as Manchester United manager come the start of next season. Shane Hannan and Willow Callan are with me as we get into all those topics. Lads, how are you getting on? How are things, lads? Yeah, really good, Enda. As good as you can be, really, when the Champions League is back. Um, we've had a few intriguing games during the week. Uh, Man City eventually breaking down Atletico. And then, did you say, Karen Benzema, a man who, as manager Carlo Ancelotti said, is aging like a fine wine. He's having a new renaissance in his career in the post-Cristiano Ronaldo era at Real Madrid. Back-to-back Champions League hat-tricks in the knockout stage. It doesn't get much better than that. Villarreal pulling off a bit of a shock against Bayern Munich during the week too. And then just the kind of small matter this weekend of a potential Premier League decider between Man City and Liverpool. So, yeah, it's been a pretty decent week, hasn't it? Yes, it's, it's exceptional, really. The Villarreal story is something that, you know, I, we should cover in a, a bit more depth at some point because, I mean, Unai Emery alone is worth covering, but the fact that Villarreal is a, a town... You know, somewhere in between the size of Galway and Cork, you know, it's it's really exceptional what they're doing at the minute. On Karen Benzema, I saw someone tweeting about uh, strikers with wristbands around their wrists, you know, the way he covers it up. Never me- never mess with a striker who has a wristband uh, carried around. So if you're thinking Karen Benzema, Luis Suarez, Jimmy Vardy, every time they have it, they just seem to be scoring loads of goals. It's, it's a dangerous weapon to have. I also, I don't know if you lads saw the... Pictures of Suarez walking into the stadium the Eddie had the other day and bypassing the the Manchester City club crest on the floor. He didn't want to walk over it. I originally thought it was for um, uh, out of uh, disrespect. He, he didn't want to even touch anything related to Man City, but apparently it was a sign of respect that he didn't want to stand on it. I, I, it's like the whole uh, footballers not celebrating against their their old clubs as well. I just one of these things that uh, footballers do that I'll never understand. But the wristbands, I, I understand the wristbands. That that just makes Benzema look dangerous. Was part yeah, of this a little bit of respect that Atletico Madrid's players decided not to walk into the Man City half as well? Was that part of the plan? <laughs> it's like the Battle yeah. of the Hill, Mayo and Dublin. <clears throat> exactly. It was a little bit. That's a little bit different. Was it Gary Neville or a United player spat on the Etihad badge at one point in time? I can't remember exactly who it was. Maybe oh, it was Ander Herrera. That's exactly who it is. I, I was trying to think through what Manchester United players had that in him. It was Ander Herrera a couple of years ago. He uh, spat, or you know, did the one hand on one nostril kind of kind of job on the Etihad by. So a little bit different approach from Ander Herrera a couple of years ago. The Champions League, though, Will, I, I, th- there's something about it. Every every time there's the World Cup draw or Gianni Infantino's in the news or somebody in power within UEFA start changing things, 
like we're going to have a couple of changes come the 2024 Champions League to the format and it's all going to change. And when we get to this stage of the competition, we, every single week is a reminder of why we should not change this competition because it's it's always provided the top-level entertainment that we look for as football fans. If you're looking for the best clubs in the world going up against each other, providing great matches, the Champions League rarely disappoints in that aspect. Yeah, it reminds me of Michael Carleone in the third edition of The Godfather when it's like, every time I want to hate the Champions League or get annoyed about European super clubs looking to feather their own nests, we get to this stage of the competition when we get to the knockouts and particularly from the quarterfinals on and it pulls me back in every single time. And we had some intriguing ties that were played during the week. A Benfica team who did really well to knock out Ajax in the last round trying to go toe-to-toe against Liverpool and just eventually Liverpool's quality uh, saw them come through. Probably enough done in the first leg to qualify next week. And that's a really good thing for them ahead of their trip to the Etihad this weekend in the Premier League. Manchester City going up against an Atletico Madrid team who were incredibly well-drilled, as negative as they were, and I joked about them not wanting to go into Man City's half. You can't but enjoy a contest like that where you've got all of Man City's talent going up against an Atletico Madrid team who, for all the talent that they've put together, the Spanish champions from last season, they also are, have the ability to be able to defend in pretty much a bank of 10. And they'll feel that that tie is very much alive going into the Spanish capital next week. Real Madrid probably have done enough with Karen Benzema's winners against uh, Chelsea uh, during the week as well. A remarkable hat-trick from him. They're in a very, very strong position to qualify. And for the second round in a row, Bayern Munich are going to have to come from behind. Like This Villarreal team are trying to get into the top four in La Liga, but their focus now probably shifts to trying to get a result at the Allianz Arena and maybe qualifying out of nowhere for the semi-finals of the Champions League. So you've so many kind of narratives like this, like who would have thought started the season that Villarreal, a team who were effectively joined up island of misfit toys, mainly former Premier League players who've been brought to Villarreal, with realistically they've gone um, to that club with little or no fanfare, very small transfer fees for the best part as well. And Unai Emery, who's an incredibly good coach, and once again it's been shown, he is the manager who's beaten Bayern Munich in their last two away games in Europe with PSG and now with Villarreal. They've put themselves into a position where they go to Germany next week with a bit of hope. And it's stories like that that make the Champions League really, really interesting when we get to this stage, I think. Yeah, it's Villarreal as well. They are... Almost the, I don't know, the soldiers going up against the narrative of the Super League because in the last couple of years, they've beaten Manchester United. They've knocked Juventus out in the last round and now Bayern Munich, I know they weren't really part of the Super League thing, but they would have been and they were asked to be. So this is, they are, you know, reasons behind why you don't want all these big clubs you know, just playing against each other and no real jeopardy in it. It, it. It's the Champions League for me is dead in 2024 because the the whole league it is a Super League without being named the Super League and without being a breakaway thing. They have changed the format to suit these bigger teams. But Shane again, Unai Emery, a man you know almost hounded out of England at the end of his Arsenal career. Arsenal were a mess hierarchically uh, when he was in charge you know they've settled down all the things seem to be taken care of now under Arteta but Unai Emery I feel sorry for him because he goes into the list of foreign managers who were much better than they were given credit for in England but because he said the word evening a little bit differently to everyone else um, he was laughed at whereas he's he's showing now and he had shown in the past as well he's a really good coach 
Yeah, and, and, and I love to see a manager getting booked as well. To see Unai Emery getting booked the other night is, just shows a bit of passion, shows a bit of something. But we knew Unai Emery was the type of character who had that within him. Um, yeah, like I, I was at Old Trafford for the for Manchester United's very late, late Ronaldo winner against uh, Villarreal earlier in the year, uh, back in the Champions League group stages. And even at that point, you, you're starting to think this, this Unai Emery guy, very, as you said, hard done by at Arsenal. Um and has clearly proved what, what he can do at Villarreal. If they go on to beat Bayern Munich, this is a Bayern Munich team that everyone has been whispering about as, as probable, uh, maybe favourites after after Real Madrid, based on form. Obviously, the Man City are there as well. Uh, Liverpool, it's it's a tough Champions League to call. But if Villarreal can knock out that Bayern Munich team, uh, given what Robert Lewandowski is doing game to game in the Bundesliga, it would be quite, quite an achievement. I don't know why his name hasn't been... In the mix for, for more jobs in Emery, I think his name was maybe half mentioned as a possible replacement at Manchester United for, for, for some time. That kind of died away when the whole Ten Hag Potch uh, rumours swirled. Um, but he is a, he, he's an incredible manager. He's a gifted manager. Mm-hmm. He's a good, good communicator. Clearly players respect him. He's got authority. Um, and as Will said, you know what, what he's doing in, in, in La Liga is important. But really now, the Allianz Arena is where it's at. If they can knock out Bayern Munich uh, and progress... To, to the last four of the Champions League and take a Villarreal team. The, the whole La Liga versus Premier League argument comes up all the time, uh, and and it, it it is an interesting discussion which which league is better. Um, but more and more, the La Liga clearly is is at a is at a level. You've got Real Madrid, not a, I won't say embarrassing Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, but uh, we'll see what happens in that return leg. That won't be easy for for Chelsea next week to go there needing needing a couple of goals at least. Um, You've got Barcelona possibly resurgent. Uh, we saw the 4-0 win in El Clasico recently. Um, and, and you'd like to see them get back to where they were with Villarreal doing what they're doing. Um, obviously, Liverpool and Man City are at a certain level, but uh, lads, La Liga, the La Liga teams are coming. And uh, I wouldn't like to pick which which league is, is actually in a, in a better position right now. Now, the flip side mm. of the argument would be that Sevilla, who've been faltering and have had their injuries, were knocked out by West Ham in the last round of the Europa League. And that's a Sevilla team who were in second place in La Liga up until last weekend when they lost against Barcelona. But I think when you look at Villarreal, while Shane is speaking, I just a very quick flick through their squad because I was thinking of some of the players that have ended up that were in the Premier League and were discarded by Premier League teams and now have been made into a very effective unit uh, by Unai Emery. And even like Danjuma, who got the winner against Bayern Munich during the week, was playing in the Championship with Bournemouth. It, very clearly he's a good player but for him to now be in the knockout stage of the Champions League this is so different to the Villarreal team they got to the semi-finals back in 2006 that was led by Raquel May which had a much more star-studded team at the time uh, this is you know an average enough group of footballers which just goes to show again what Unai Emery can do and this guy is a serial winner in Europe you only have to look at his record in the Europa League across various clubs uh, to see what he can do he can set a team up to be very difficult to beat in knockout football uh, but you've got Francois Coquelin you've got Alberto Moreno who's injured at the moment La Celso who's currently on loan from Tottenham Hotspur Foyt who was at Tottenham before too and this is a team who are beating Bayern Munich in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. It's an incredibly romantic story uh, for a town of 50,000 people. Uh, the Yellow Submarine continue to punch above their weight. Uh, but this year, particularly, it's a remarkable run they've had in Europe. Yeah, and it, it's, it actually is an incredible, incredible team that they've got at the minute. When you look at just the, the starting lineup against Bayern Munich, you've got uh, Raul Albiol playing centre back, you want uh, Juan Freus, uh, obviously, previously of. Of Tottenham, Giovanni Lo Celso, Etienne Capu, uh, Danny Parejo, Francis Coughlin. These are all names that we know, but they are not exactly a star sort of team. They are a team that are probably, you know, where they should be in La Liga. But 
when you've got a good manager who has European experience and knows how to put together a team and, and get wins when they need them. I mean, Bayern Munich could come and beat them 4-0 at the Allianz Arena. That could happen as well. But it would be outstanding for them to actually uh, reach a, a Champions League semi-final. would be the story of the the Champions League this year. But Karim Benzema is a man who's taking the headlines, really, because another hat-trick against Chelsea. Two brilliant headers. I can't decide which one I enjoyed more. And then a bit of a mishap from uh, Mendy and goals and and Rudiger allowed him to get a tap in, which was it was it was called a tap in. I don't I don't necessarily call that a tap in. It's still from outside of the box, even though there's nobody in there in the nets. But three three one was the final scoreline. Real Madrid are in the driving seat in this uh, this leg against Chelsea. Chelsea are in a bad enough form at the minute here, Shane. But Real Madrid, I mean, they've really come out of nowhere here under Car- Carlo Ancelotti. They were stuttering for large parts of. La Liga this year, but they clicked. Something clicked when they beat PSG. And for a team that was forever the villains of European football, it just seems that everyone seems to be supporting Real Madrid in Europe this year. It's I don't know what it is about them. They, yeah, I think it's where it's the just, chips are down. Like they they had that that it's made and again it's amazing how football is fickle and can change so quickly. Like when they when they lost four 0 to Barca in, the, in El Clasico, and then when after the first leg against PSG, when things didn't look so great, you're thinking, ah, Real are Real are gone. Um, but you have to remember, they're still Real Madrid. They still you still look around that team yesterday, and you've Modric, you've Benzema, you've you've you know Casemiro, Nacho Fernandez, Danny Carvajal as well. All these familiar names. Um, but uh, since they came good in in that second leg against PSG, I mean they're twelve points clear in La Liga albeit a resurgent Barca that uh, are hoping to close the gap, but it's unlikely that uh, it would change the destination of the title. But um, they're just such such a great team to watch. And as you said, they have completely turned that turned that corner from villain to, to kind of the team people are maybe supporting. Um, like, great line here from, from Jonathan Liu in The Guardian uh, today after the, the win last night. And we know Jonathan is a, is a great writer anyway, but he said the gilded lineage, the familiar faces and the rhythms, the comfort of continuity, this is the gift of Madrid but also it's curse. And that's the point. I mean, Madrid come into that game against Chelsea with massive pressure, but also with a point to prove. And that was a dangerous thing for, for Chelsea and Thomas Tuchel. Like this Madrid squad probably needs a new coach at some point, probably needs a bit of renewal, some fresh faces, uh, but they're still an incredibly um, top team. And there's no doubt about the, the quality that they have in that side. Like I was interested to listen to the lads on uh, BT Sport after the match last night and, Rio Ferdinand uh, describing uh, Benzema quite obviously as as one of the best number nines in the world, probably the best number nine, I think he said. Uh, and I'm just thinking as he's talking, I'm thinking, okay, you can mention Lewandowski, of course, in this this breath, but please don't mention Harry Kane. Please don't say Harry Kane. Please don't say Harry Kane. And of course, he, <laughs> he throws in Harry Kane's name as well, uh, as the English press tend to do. Harry Kane playing v- very well recently. But um, I just think Benzema and Lewandowski are, are on a different plane when it comes to, to, to number nines. And... So talk about players getting better better with age. I mean, 34 years of age and he's he's only going up the way. Like, you can't see him getting any worse with age. He seems to be in, in a position right now in his career. Luka Modric is another where they just improve with experience, improve with age. I think one of, one of you lads described it as a fine wine earlier and that's what it is. And uh, look, this, this Real Madrid team, it, it kind, kind of points to directly towards Chelsea as well. 98 million pound striker Romelu Lukaku with a probably an easier header than, than both of Benzema's two last night that he manages to somehow uh, drift wide. Um, and that kind of highlights what a really good centre forward and number nine can do compared with what a what an out of sorts uh, centre forward like Lukaku can do. Because Lukaku we know is a great player but uh, Benzema's on a whole different level at the minute, lads. 
Yeah, big time. And the, there's the one thing about this Real Madrid side, maybe this is the reason that they're almost being romanticized this year is because of some of the players that we know and maybe this might be their, their last foray in, you know, top level football. Tony Cruz is 32, you know, he's more like a 35 year old because he's been playing so long. Luka Modric is literally 36 years old. Eden Hazard, 31. I know he's not been involved. Gareth Bale, 32. Karen Benzema, 34. These, this is not a team full of spring chickens or full of like new superstars. This is full of t- players who have been there, done that, and worn the t-shirt, and suddenly they're going for it again. Well, how how important do you think that is going to be? Because I I think that's the difference between the sides. If you look at well, the PSG win, for example, you know they had Lionel Messi, but apart from that. They had no players really with the experience of going the full distance when it comes to the Champions League. In terms of Man City, you've got a similar enough squad, you know, really good, well-coached team. But when it comes to winning the ultimate trophy, you know, there's not many players in that squad that have done it. Liverpool, you know, they've recently won it, so you can probably discount them. But you're talking about a, a team here that have still got players from the team that won the four in a row uh, mm-hmm. in terms of Champions League. So... In, in in terms of experience, they, that could see them over the hill because Carlo Ancelotti has also won this this trophy multiple times as well. So they know how to do it. Yeah, it's one of the things I wondered about last summer was that they had to change both of their centre-backs because Sergio Ramos you know, was determined to go and have an adventure elsewhere and finish out his career at PSG. And then Varane was sold to Manchester United. So the backbone effectively of that very successful Real Madrid team in Europe was ripped away for Militao and the incoming David Alaba to play at centre-half back. Now, Alaba has been excellent this season and Shane already mentioned the Clasico and the 4-0 humbling that Real Madrid took. We probably can take a few takeaways from that game. One is that Ferland Mendy is still incredibly important at left back and Marcelo is no longer good enough one of the older players to step in in that position. So Nacho played over on the left-hand side in that game. And then Bele ripped that side of their defence apart. So they need Ferlamendi to stay fit for the rest of the season if they're going to contend for the Champions League. And also in that game, they had no Karen Benzema and Carlo Ancelotti decided to change the system and it went horrifically wrong. Uh, they decided effectively to play Vinicius Jr. up front with Rodrigo in an attacking position too. They were unable to keep the ball in midfield because they left out a player who was incredibly important last night, who was Valverde, who's been excellent for them over the last couple of seasons, the Uruguayan midfielder. And because they were able to get in his extra bit of running into midfield, it actually helped out with the aging midfield that they have. So Casemiro is always going to be there as the extra bit of protection in front of the defence. You've got Tony Cruz and Modric, who are not going to be able to get around the pitch as much as they previously were. Neither player really has been about you know covering all that much mileage, but they've been about agility in their passing throughout their career. Their passing still gives them a very good base right now. And... I don't need to remind you about the fact that Modric made a lung-busting run in the second leg against PSG, which led to the goal that put Real Madrid ahead in that tie. And then you look at it and think Rodrigo was able to cause plenty of problems down the right-hand side, particularly for Andreas Christensen, who is not exactly full of pace. I'm wondering if Barcelona were maybe wondering if the ink is actually dry in that contract uh, when they saw uh, the way that Vinicius was able to run at him last evening. Militao picked up a yellow card. Now, that could still be significant for the second leg because next week you're thinking that Nacho, who's not the paciest, will have to come in. And maybe that side is somewhere that Chelsea can still get it at the burnabout. But generally... As you say, Ended, they're a team that are full of winners, three, four European Cups in many cases uh, still within that team. A midfield with huge experience. Now, the legs caught up with them a little bit last season in the knockout stage of the Champions League. But I think if Valverde is still there as the guy who's going to get up and down as the box-to-box midfielder, the pace up front and Karen Benzema in the 
absolute form of his career, this Real Madrid team are going to be very difficult to play against, no matter who gets through in the other tie between Man City and Atletico Madrid. Atletico have got nightmares about playing Real anyway, but if Man City get through, Real Madrid are going to be a sticky opposition for them in the last four of the competition. And like... (sighs) Karen Benzema is just remarkable, really, because early on in his career, he was this kind of shining light striker who everyone thought was going to burst onto the scene from Lyon and become the absolute best number nine in the world when he went to Real Madrid. Well, it just turned out that at the time, the best forward player in the world was playing for Real Madrid in Cristiano Ronaldo. And he had to dovetail with Ronaldo a lot and play second fiddle to him. And it's only really since Ronaldo left that Benzema has been able to take on a huge amount of responsibility in that attack. He's been injured a reasonable amount this season. I think he's only played about 30 games between the Champions League and in La Liga. But he has been remarkably effective. In La Liga particularly, he's on course to be the Pichichi. He's scoring a goal for less than every 90 minutes. And he's been lethal in these last two games in Europe. So again, I think if Ferlamendi and Benzema are fit, the two players that were sorely missing in the Clasico, this Real Madrid team are going to be very, very difficult to beat. Yeah, big time. I should correct myself. It wasn't four titles. It wasn't four Champions League titles in a row. It, albeit it was four titles in five years. So there were, I mean, we were, we were close enough for that. You're thinking of Gareth Bale right here with his four Champions League trophies then. I am indeed. Um, so listen, we, we should turn to the other Champions League ties and that was Manchester City against Atletico Madrid and ben, Benfica against Liverpool. Benfica against Liverpool's not so much irrelevant, but it's not as intriguing as the the Man City Atletico Madrid game. And there was a lot of talk about tactics and things going into this game for obvious reasons. But the more interesting side of things was Pep Guardiola's almost um, assessment of himself when it comes to the Champions League. He was speaking before the game and he said in the Champions League that I I always overthink, I always uh, create new tactics and ideas and tomorrow you will see a new one. I overthink a lot. That's why I have very good results in the Champions League. I love it. He goes on and talks a little bit more. But I think a lot of people would disagree with what he's saying there in terms of having a lot of success in the Champions League. I mean, we're talking about one of the most decorated managers um, of all time here, arguably the greatest manager of all time here, who hasn't really done it in the Champions League outside of his Barcelona team, who obviously had Lionel Messi in his prime. So we have a Bill Belichick, Tom Brady sort of argument there to be made against Pep Guardiola. We did see a new tactic against Atletico Madrid and it was almost like a mirror of Atletico Madrid's tactics. I know a lot of people were sharing Atletico's uh, two sets of five essentially defending but Manchester City did the exact same thing as them only they did it in the Atletico Madrid half. I'm not sure if you've seen that screenshot have you? I haven't seen that one but that, that, that kind of sums it up doesn't it? Like I mean we, we kind of knew what to expect with Atletico with, with the defensive game plan and and like you mentioned Pep's interviews and stuff, to see him bite back a journalist in that way um, and kind of almost laugh about his lack of uh, tactical awareness was 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 quite funny. Um, like what I took out of that game, massively so, was, was uh, you know, a Simeone masterclass in shithousery, which we should not be surprised by and shouldn't be at all uh, concerned that uh, he would he would target the likes of Jack Grealish and his players would, would target Jack Grealish uh, in that game. Um, but I don't know about you lads, like, wasn't there, wasn't it, was it in the Euros maybe that someone, or it was certainly at some stage in the last year or two where, where someone complimented Jack Grealish's calves in a match, maybe it was, it was in the Premier League possibly. Um, and that, that sort of tactic seems to put Grealish off more so than, than ruffling his hair and, and kicking him and, and, taking him out of the game. So I don't know, maybe Atletico got their tactics themselves wrong in that regard. Mm. 
Well, really quickly before we take a quick break, um, Atletico, are they happy with that 1-0 result or do you think Man City will have too much in the second leg? I think Manchester City will progress, but I don't think Atletico will be overly unhappy with the result to get out of the Etihad with the game still in the balance. Um, the fact is that Manchester City just had that extra bit of quality and we saw, like say, Phil Foden, who's able to play the ball in the half turn and just be such an important creative outlet for them. When you get into congested spaces, like you just mentioned there, Enda, where it's not just a case of Atletico Madrid having a lot of men behind the ball, but Manchester City are going to camp in your half too. So space was at a premium. And this is something that Guardiola has spoken about quite a few times about the battles he's had with Diego Simeone. He says he respects massively the fact that Simeone is incredibly good at actually closing down areas where you can attack from. And this is where, you know, it's a big test for Manchester City across both of these legs because without having a centre forward who is going to be there to occupy the Atletico Madrid, Madrid midfielders, you have to look to try and get those players in attacking positions like Kevin De Bruyne, like Mares, and like Bernardo Silva. And it's very difficult when Atletico are really good at marking space as opposed to marking players. So in theory, this is a very difficult tie for Manchester City. They'll be happy enough, I think, uh, to go away with a 1-0 win from home. They'll go and try and just boss the ball in the game against Atletico Madrid. But this Atletico Madrid team are well able to make chances. You know, João Felix has been in pretty good form for Atletico Madrid over the last couple of months. Uh, they've got themselves back on track in La Liga, uh, despite the fact that they were in pretty poor form when they went into that tie with Manchester United in the last round. So it's amazing how much can actually change in a month for a team. Again, I think this is potentially Diego Simeone's last run at trying to win the Champions League. I think there's a very good chance that Atletico will par company with them this summer. But it'll be very interesting to see how, how or if they change their approach in the second leg. They might not be overly unhappy to let Manchester City come onto them in the second game at the WADA and then try and catch them on a good attack. So it could be an mm-hmm. intriguing tactical battle next week. Yeah. So that was the Champions League for this week. If you want to get in touch with the show tonight, you can text us on 53106 or you can tweet us at Team33. Let us know your thoughts on the Champions League. Up after the break, we'll be talking about Manchester United's new man. Stay tuned. Team 33. This is OTB Sports Radio. Now you're welcome back to Team 33. And a call here with you in the company of Shane Hannan and Willow Callan. Before the break, we were chatting about the Champions League and the review of the week. If you want to get that, it'll be available to podcast in the usual places. Manchester United seem to have their new man. It was reported during the week by Mark Ogden and ESPN that Air 10 Hawk is going to be the new Manchester United manager. And the Ajax manager seems to have gotten the job, not so much in a technicality in the same way that David Moyes did, but because he was the, he was the cheaper option. Shane, there was a sort of contra- contrasting reports about this because Miguel Delaney and the Independent said that Manchester United were very underwhelmed by uh, Ten Hag uh, and his interview and what he had put forward. He had a five-year plan and... We don't really know what he said in the interview, but it was reported then later on that uh, by Mark Ogden that he is getting the job. He will be announced as the Manchester United manager. And one of the main sticking points was the awkwardness of getting Mauricio Pochettino away from PSG. It would have cost a lot more money. And with Leonardo potentially on the way out, Pochettino's future might actually be a little bit longer at the club than we would have expected given the Champions League exit. So Ten Hag is a coach very much a coach. Uh, I know Simon Cooper was on speaking with us on the football show during the week. He said he's a special coach, even if he is not charismatic like Jose Mourinho. Uh, the worry for me here, Shane, is that the players still exist within this club. And Ten Hag plays a similar system to what Ralph Ragnick would have played as as a manager. High pressing, high intensity, need to be fit, fit for it. 
and you need to look at it from a long-term process. That's my worry for Manchester United because that is so far away from what they've been doing over the last couple of years and the players that they have at the club at the minute. Yeah, and the players need to work like need to work hard under under a manager like Ten Hag. I have to compliment your pronunciation of Ten Hag as well. You sound like a man who spent some summers in Amsterdam or something. That's no, I, I was practicing since uh, Simon Cooper came on because that was the first thing he said to Joe Malloy. He said, "Ten Hag, let's get Ten it Hag. right from the start." We all should get it right. If anyone takes anything from Team Thirty Three tonight, take the pronunciation of Ten Hag's name uh, correctly. Um, yeah, like. I get like it was really interested to see a, a poll that Gary Neville put up on his on his Twitter the other day. Two hundred forty thousand uh, people voting, uh, so not exactly a, a small sample size. Eighty two percent in favor of bringing in Ten Hag over over Pochettino, um, which I found surprising. Uh, we know that Pochettino has the Premier League experience. You hear some people saying, "Oh, Ten Hag has the has the youth and uh, the freshness." You forget the fact that, you know, he's 52 years of age and Pochettino is 50. So, in fact, this is a Jesse Lingard situation where everyone calls him young. Uh, but Ten Hag is actually older than Maurizio Pochettino. So that argument is out the window. Uh, he certainly brings the freshness. Um, certainly brings something different. Like, we have to remember as well that Ralph Rangnick is not leaving. Uh, or Certainly that wasn't the deal. The deal was that in July he moves up, up the stairs to his, uh, I guess, his other role, um, his overarching role of the club. Um and maybe that's a role that, that Rangnick does better than the day-to-day working with these players. You look at what Pochettino has done at, at PSG, a bit iffy. Um, the, the Real Madrid knockout in the Champions League was was particularly disappointing. Uh, how does he deal with big names, Pochettino? Probably he's more experienced at dealing with bigger names than Ten Hag, but you cannot you cannot pick a manager solely based on that. I thought it was funny, ended that you... Like, they're, they're saying, you know, he's really impressed in the interview. All these sources that Mark Ogden has got, he's very much impressed in the interview. But of course, they're going to say that when, as you said, he's the cheaper option. Like just reading here, the competition is £1.7 million sterling for him compared to the £15 million for Pochettino. Uh, even for a club like Manchester United, that's that's a big difference. Um, that is a big difference monetarily. Like I know it's been been John Murdo and, and Darren Fletcher doing these interviews and leading the the, the search. Um, the word is that Richard Arnold and, and the Glazers, certainly Joel Glazer, uh, quite happy to, to lean in the Ten Hag direction compared to Pochettino. Of course, they're going to say that, especially the Glazers. They, they see this club, as Louis van Gaal put, um, as a commercial club and not necessarily a football club. That uh, how, they, how they fare in the New York Stock Exchange and uh, profitability-wise is important. Um, like Ten Hag, uh, from Manchester United fans' perspective, it's just all up in the air right now. We can't get excited about anything because someone comes in and you think this is this is okay. This is interesting. We we probably thought the same when Mourinho was coming in. When when Moyes came in straight after Ferguson, United fans thought, okay, this is this is the right move, the right time. Van Hal was the same, proven manager in European football. Uh, the same with Ralph Rangnick. Perhaps he was the name floated around, and United fans were quite excited to see what he could do. But you you've you've hit the nail on the head there, Enda. It's the players. What. What can he do with this with this group of players? It, the squad needs an overhaul. Uh, even the United players gone out on loan. Donny van de Beek is potentially about to help Everton get relegated. Um, Anthony Martial is as brutal in with Sevilla as he was at Old Trafford in recent times. And the players at the club just don't look interested. Uh, and people, mm. players like Pogba and Rashford probably need to leave this summer. So it's a time of change at Manchester United, but uh, a lot of excitement. And I think United fans in the majority, perhaps, prefer Ten Hag over Pochettino, which is a controversial one because I know there's a lot of United fans out there that wanted Poch, but Ten Hag seems to be, on paper anyway, uh, a good appointment. 
Yeah, my, my issue is that he won't get the time because he's saying it's a five-year plan. Jurgen Klopp said Liverpool was a five-year plan on the fifth year he delivered the Premier League title. But the important aspect of that is that Jurgen Klopp got the time. He was allowed the time. The expectations were dimmed each year. My question is, do Manchester United have the patience to do that? Because, I mean, what was who was the manager five years ago at Manchester United? Was it Van Hal? So since then... Yeah, Van Hal, um, yeah. Since then, United have gone through Van Hal, Jose Mourinho, Solskjaer, Ragnick, and now they're landing on uh, Ten Hag. So it, it just depends whether or not he gets time. On Liverpool's first squad, when Klopp took over, you've got Mignolet in goals, Klein, Skirtle, Sacco, Moreno, Lucas Leva, uh, Emre Chan, Lalana, Coutinho, Milner, Origi. When you compare that to United squad with Paul Pogba, Sancho, Fernandez, Varane, Maguire, De Gea, Ronaldo. The issue here, Will, is that Jurgen Klopp inherited a bad squad, but a very disposable squad, and a squad that was not full of people who think they are superstars without actually having achieved anything in their career to date, bar Cristiano Ronaldo, really. Well, the only argument against that would be that the Paul Pogba situation is infinitely solvable if... Ten Hag decides he doesn't want him, he can just allow Pogba's contract to run out this summer and allow another club to come in for him. Cristiano Ronaldo is going to be probably a bigger question given that he is another year in his contract, quite a lucrative one. Is the belief there that he can come in and buy into his system? Like, I think it's quite intriguing just on a philosophical level that Manchester United have now gone to effectively keep up with the neighbours with the two coach appointments. So in the case of Ralph Ragnick, and I realised there was a behind-the-scenes part to this, and it's intriguing that so many reports say that Ragnick had very little to do with the appointment this time around, even though he's meant to be going upstairs and uh, effectively becoming the football director of the club, and that's what Manchester United wanted in the longer term. But in bringing in Ragnick in the first place, they went for effectively the godfather of a system which is played by Jurgen Klopp currently. So they were going for a Liverpool-style system by going for Ralph Ragnick. And in the case of Ten Hag, they've gone for a manager who has literally worked under Pep Guardiola at Bayern Munich, where he was the coach of their B team and was learning from Pep Guardiola's style of football and effectively played a very similar system to Pep Guardiola when he was at Ajax. I know there's all the baked-in football tradition within Ajax and they played, uh, particularly in that 2019 season, with a system which was very Cruyffian. But still, they've gone for Manchester City style and Liverpool style for these two appointments. While it seemed that up until now... It was a case of getting an alpha male who was going to be able to take over and bring back the Alex Ferguson years. It's almost like no, they, they react- wanted to play Manchester United style when really that that is non-existent. It's yeah, not a thing. Exactly. exactly. It's 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 really just a dreamland thing, this idea of the Manchester United way. Because Alex Ferguson played in so many different ways over his three decades in charge of the club anyway. But then when he left, there was this feeling that maybe David Moyes wasn't a big enough personality or you know, maybe he wasn't experienced enough or big enough for the players to buy into. So who do you go for? You go for Louis van Gaal, who's got his own style of football and who is a big authoritarian. Similarly, they go for Jose Mourinho, you know, a guy who's bossed the Premier League before and a guy who's been you know, a colossal football manager. And then you go for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as the club legend and you try and soften things and go in a totally different style. Then you're bringing in Ragnick, who's meant to be bringing something that's very different to the way that you're playing. And now they're going for a totally different style of football again now under Eric Den Hag. So like, a lot of questions have to be asked about the way that Manchester United's decision-making is going around all this. I, he has to have received assurances, though, because this is a manager who has been in high demand. He's been linked with all the top jobs in Europe after what happened in 2019. He's got a proven track record of bringing through young players 
all we have to look at are some of the Ajax players who found themselves going to top European clubs in recent seasons, like Frankie de Jong, like Matthias de Ligt, who were part of those 2019 teams. Even Donny van de Beek was incredibly good in 2019. We haven't seen too much of him since uh, between Manchester United and Everton, but still, he was playing remarkably well. Ajax have got a track record of getting the most out of the players that they have, even if they are coming through a system, you know, which is very native to them once they get to the first team. Even earlier in the Champions League this season, they wiped the group stages with six wins. Sebastian Halle at that point was the top scorer in the Champions League. They came unstuck against a pretty good Benfica team in the round of 16. But you can't but be impressed with what he's done with Ajax, because I'm sure there are those who will go, ah, look, all of his kind of senior management experience is in the Eredivisie, and that doesn't necessarily translate over to the Premier League. If you're going to judge what he's done so far as manager, you would probably look at what Ajax have done in Europe. Very, very impressive. And beating teams who've got a much bigger budget with generally a fairly young group of players too. So again, it has to be exciting for Manchester United to be bringing in one of the top coaches in the world. The risk would be that we've heard all this before when it comes to say Ralph Ragnick is going to come in, he is going to take no BS and he's going to change the style of football and everyone's going to buy into it. And that's not necessarily what we've seen in this few months in charge. Albeit it's a little bit easier when a new coach comes in with a preseason and possibly the chance to actually pick his own players for next season. Like, I don't know about mm-hmm. you guys. Do you think there is going to be a clear out at Old Trafford? Because you hear this almost every year. Manchester mm-hmm. are going to have a clear out. They're getting rid of players and still Jesse Lingard is there running down his contract. Mm-hmm. No, they can't. They, they, they literally can't. They just have to wait these players out because nobody's going to buy them with the wages that they're on. They've got the highest wage bill in the world by a country mile, really. Barcelona are the only club that are competing with them in that aspect and it's for really average players I mean that that's the that's the main part I would make is that the players that have been warming the bench for years at Manchester United are on the wages that the highest level Tottenham players are on I mean this is this is the major issue with Manchester United is that they can't get rid of the, the unhappy players and and let's face it, the leaks that are coming out are not coming from the happy players that are playing week in, week out. They're coming from the players who aren't, who fe- have felt hard done by by Ralph Ragnick at the club so far. So, yeah, the uh, the charismatic one's an interesting conversation because Simon Cooper made a similar enough observation about this. And Manchester United shouldn't be going for charisma. Manchester United should be going for the best coach in the world, really. They should be. Three of them are already taken up in... Liverpool, Man City and uh, Chelsea, potentially Tottenham as well, if you look at them. Um, If you're talking top five, top six managers, Eric Ten Hag is within that. Julian Nagelsmann at Bayern Munich as well. So he's probably the last of the top managers available or that Manchester United can get at the minute. So they should really be going for that rather than somebody who has charisma like Jose Mourinho or somebody who has done it 15 years ago like Louis van Gaal. This is a guy who's doing it at the minute and hopefully will be able to do it at the club as well here, Shane. Yeah, and like the only other names, I guess, that were kind of in the mix. I know Lapategui probably wanted to stay at Sevilla. Luis Enrique committed to Spain for the World Cup, which you understand. But this is a job that that every manager in world football should want. It's complicated by the fact that, as you said, this United team are underperforming. Um, but maybe that's a good time for a manager to come in when expectations are low. But then this is the thing with Ten Hag. Expectations are never low at Manchester United, no matter how low the bar uh, seems to get. Uh, there's a glare and an international glare at that on Manchester United as, as a football club that Eric Ten Hag won't be, won't be used to whatsoever. Um, Pochettino will have experienced that at Spurs to an extent and certainly at PSG. Uh, but, but this expectation and, and level of competition at the top end of the Premier League is unlike anything that Eric Ten Hag will will have previously experienced. Like, 
we remember that the only previous time perhaps that an Ajax coach moved to England's top flight, um, a highly rated, uh, quote unquote, at the time was was Frank de Boer, <laughs> who, um, who lasted 77 days, I think it was, at Crystal Palace. So United fans at the minute will be, will be excited for Ten Hag's appointment, but also taking it with a pinch of salt because saying someone is highly rated at Ajax does not immediately transfer to results in the Premier League. Uh, as Will mentioned and yourself mentioned, uh, and uh, yes, he's had good results in the Champions League, which certainly would hint at a, at a, at a good manager underneath there somewhere uh, and someone who can really, really do good things at this club. But you have to see how he copes with the, with the glare, the expectation and the pressure of not just a Premier League club like United, but, but a world-leading uh, commercial club like Manchester United, as Louis van Gaal put it. The pressure is unlike anything he would have ever experienced before. And United fans will just be sitting there, fingers crossed, that this doesn't go uh, the Frank de Boer direction. Mm. Well, I think everybody will be hoping it doesn't go the Frank de Boer <laughs> direction, even Manchester United rivals, because that was some of the worst football you're ever going to see in the Premier League. Until Frank Lampard took over at Everton. Um, Frank Lampard really struggling with the Toffees so far there in a relegation dogfight, lost to uh, fellow relegation candidates Burnley during the week. Again, if you're talking about a battle for staying in the Premier League, there's very few men that I would uh, hire ahead of Sean Dyche because the man knows how to do it. And after the win as well, very interesting words from Sean Dyche, uh, essentially saying that at halftime he told his team that I don't think these lads know how to win. I, he, he was very, very confident of his side pulling off a result despite uh, Everton being leading at uh, 2-1. And it just... It, well, the, we, we spoke about Frank Lampard a couple of weeks ago. This is his seventh defeat in the nine games that he's been in charge in the league uh, for Everton. It doesn't seem to be getting any better. In fact, it's probably getting worse. And we alluded to it at the start when this, when this was... Uh, when he, I think it was just before he got the job or uh, he had just been hired by Everton. It didn't make sense at the time. It still seemed like he was getting this job based on a reputation. And that reputation is perhaps enhanced only by his footballing career as, as opposed to his managerial career. Yeah, I think genuinely rumours last night were that Everton were going to call a board meeting today where they were going to have a look at the situation because of the poor points accumulation over the last eight games in the Premier League and that hammering that they took from Crystal Palace in the FA Cup quarterfinals too, that's, there is that feeling that now, as pointed out by Sean Dyche, that this Everton team look incredibly low in confidence. And there are a lot of players there who do not have release clauses coming up this summer, but they know that Everton will be pressurised into selling them because of their wages. And you wonder, are some of those players the ones that you would want in what's going to be a real dogfight over the last eight games of the season, particularly if one or two of the other teams around the bottom of the table start to hit form. At the moment, maybe it looks like a straight shootout for the last relegation spot between Burnley and Everton because Burnley have now blown it wide open with that 3-2 victory uh, midweek in the Premier League. But say if Norwich start to pick up a few results, then Everton will really start to panic. And they're one of those teams who cannot afford to go down to the championship because of the structure of everything happening behind the scenes financially at Goodison Park too. They're getting ready to make their move with the stadium. That will not be factored into financial fair play. But a big risk for them is that if you go into the Football League, the EFL have got much stricter rules around financial fair play. So if they were to be relegated, and with the wages that Everton currently have, we're talking about substantial losses. I think they've posted around $160 over the last two years, and we're able to write some of that down because it was development going into their women's team and youths teams. 
But they're going to be looked at, particularly around their wage bill, massively if they were to go into the championship. And then you're talking about you know, potentially having to let, say, Dominic Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison, who should be the two jewels, really, of their team currently, might well have to go on the cheap. And they've had to see players leave the club to try and bring down that wage bill, you know, like James Rodriguez and Bernard going to the Middle East, just purely to try and get them off the wage bill. So Everton are teetering in this really difficult position. And I'd love to know what the contract terms are with Frank Lampard if they were looking to try and pull the trigger early. Maybe financially they're not going to be able to do so. But at the moment... With the form that they have, it feels like they're sleepwalking into the relegation zone while Burnley look like they're going in the opposite direction. It's like you said, Enda, you want players like Tarkovsky last night who will put in a little bit of a fight. We saw that from Burnley in the second half too. They were scrapping away to make sure that they got those three points uh, which put their lives back into their own hands effectively in the Premier League. Everton faded and were in a really good position to win. Richarlison, who's maybe the one player who's got the least to lose here because he knows that he'll get a move to a decent club in the summer, even if Everton were to go down, looked the only real bright light. He had another couple of good chances, the overhead which could have went in, scored the two penalties. But outside of that, Everton looked really, really weak. And in the last few weeks, they have looked very susceptible to concede goals too. If I was an Everton fan, I would be getting very nervous about the last seven, eight games of the season. Yeah, big time. And there's a good video on TIFO IRL. They did a breakdown of what actually will happen when Everton, if uh, Everton are relegated. And what's interesting about them, if 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 uh, they are relegated, they are in a different situation to other clubs like Burnley, like Norwich, who are used to being down in that location where. It's inbuilt into the players' contracts that if they get relegated into the championship, it's an automatic 50 to 70% wage cut. Whereas Everton are used to being up at eighth, ninth position. So they do not have that uh, built into the players' contracts because they didn't expect it to. So they could be in for a rough ride in the championship because they would be selling their best players, essentially, and even selling some of their mid to, to high range players as well. So it would be a complete rebuild job for a club who have lost. An like an inordinary amount of money in the last couple of years and have a new stadium on the way as well. So it could be borderline disastrous if Everton do go down. Just looking at the final fixtures before we finish up, Everton have Manchester United, Leicester, Liverpool, Chelsea, Leicester again, <laughs> uh, Arsenal and Crystal Palace all to play uh, in the next couple of games. Whereas Burnley, on the other hand, Burnley have Norwich, Southampton, Watford, Aston Villa, Newcastle, you know, like th- that's the difference in the fixture list. So I think at the minute I would have Burnley in the driver's seat because of the manager and because of those fixtures as well. But we shall wait and see. The relegation dogfight continues over the next couple of weeks. Lads, that's all we have time for. So Shane, thank you. Thanks a million, lads. Willow Callahan and his dog, Hank, thank you. Pleasure as always, lads. Thanks. Now, so that's us done on this week's Team 33. Thanks to you, as ever, for listening. If you want to listen back to that, it is available now in the OTB Sports app. If you want to get the podcast, you can get it in the OTB Sports app or wherever you get your podcasts. Or it is available as well on our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash off the ball. If you want to see Hank's silhouette in the background of Will's picture, it's well worth checking that out. Don't forget that our League of Ireland late at night is up next if you want to get onto Twitter it's on Twitter Spaces and it will be Nathan Murphy Shane Keegan and Johnny Ward looking back at the Knights League of Ireland and you can get in touch as well you can even be a star on the show you can talk to the lads let us know if you've been at the match or if you were watching a match 
or what do you think of the season so far so Twitter spaces is where that is happening we will be back on Team 33 in the same time same place next week until then Slag of Foil take away Johan (laughs) 